Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. So hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're talking to Ariane and Gabriel from Plug and Play, Italy and France. We're going to talk about what Plug and Play can do for you if you're a fintech startup or a startup in general and uh, what kind of resources you can get and, and help and advice from them. So welcome, Ariane and Gabriel. How are you today? Good, good. Ariana was just telling me that it's a beautiful day on her side, but over here in Paris, it is horrible, raining, drizzling. Hello. Hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, here in Milan, it's sunny and it's beautiful. All right, great. So can you tell us a bit about yourselves? How did you get to do what you do? I'm always a bit curious because maybe you detect a little bit of jealousy there. I'd love to do what you do. So how did you make that happen? When it comes to questions such as, oh, how do you do what you do and how do you get into it? It always comes with a bit of an interesting backstory, right? Because just a few years ago, our jobs almost didn't exist, right? So on my side, uh, as we mentioned, my name is Gabrielle. I'm the director of FinTech in EMEA for Plug and Play, which is a seed stage venture capital firm that also runs innovation programs across 32 locations in the world. Now, back in the day, I didn't always do that. I've been at Plug and Play now for about over three and a half, close to four years. But I actually got into FinTech about six years ago when I was working at Bloomberg. As you know, a lot of people would actually say that Bloomberg was probably one of the first fintechs ever existed, right? And uh, it became such a, a megalith in the financial industry. So I used to build financial products. And as we were building these products, it became clear as the vocabulary changed that people started calling it fintech. So I became more and more interested in, okay, what, what, what is fintech? Because finance, sure, I'd studied economics before and finance, but what, what is fintech? And I got more and more into it, and uh, I decided to do the jump, and I joined uh, Citibank in Miami, and I joined their city fintech team, which was essentially a big competition to crowdsource fintech and regtech solutions and implement them either within the bank or to some of our institutional clients back in the day. And that's really how I got into the whole implementation of fintech solutions, looking at what was out there and what could help, you know, big incumbent banks. And then from there, I eventually met Plug and Play in Silicon Valley um, in uh, late 2016. And uh, when they opened up their part first partnership for fintech in Europe with BNP Paribas, I uh, jumped ship back to Paris. And uh, let's say a few, a, couple, a year or so later, Ariana joined us. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> So, as and Ariana, so you are a corporate partnerships and program manager, right? I didn't say at the end at the beginning, so I just wanted to mention that now. Sorry, I have a quite of a different story from uh, from Gabriel. So, what is happening is that I was in Italy working in a big corporation here and Microsoft. I decided to move to Asia because I really felt that I needed to go there. And during the thesis uh, of my MBA, we went to uh, to actually to PayPal. And among the initiatives that we did there was to go and visit the plug-and-play HQ in Sunnyvale. 
I don't know. I went there and I felt that I really had to, to be there and work for plug and play. And then a year and a half ago, almost, I joined as we launched the Italian office with my, two of my colleagues. So right now what I'm doing, I'm taking care of our eight corporate partners that we have here in Italy. Uh, we are uh, running through verticals, to be honest. And uh, we are all organizing the activities of the open innovation programs that we run. So what is plug and play? What is it that you do? Or if I were to put you in buckets, are you an incubator, accelerator or a VC uh, for outfit or all of the above? I mean, I think the good question is, what is it that we don't do at this point, to be honest? Uh, Ariana's going to giggle. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm happy to tell you a little bit more about our activities, which are wide-reaching and we hope at least uh, as impactful, to be honest. So originally, Plug and Play is actually a venture capital firm. Very, very classic stuff. Seed stage investments, ticket sizes of between 50 to 250,000. Um, we do on average about 250 investments a year. Um, and... Uh, we do this year on year. So traditionally, we are a seed stage investor. And uh, some of our early successes are the likes of PayPal, which Ariana mentioned earlier, Dropbox, uh, Lending Club. Back in uh, California, we also had uh, quite a bit of rental, rental space. So we were the landlords of Google back when they were 28 uh, people in the lucky building. We were also the landlords of PayPal, which is probably why they let us invest in, in the round. But altogether, we are just a traditional VC investor and have been over the past 20 years. However, over time, um, about, let's say, 10, 10 or so years ago, we started realizing that it was very interesting to, let's say, de-risk our investments by introducing these very early stage companies to large corporations. If the corporations were excited or interested, it was pretty much a good sign for us that we should be putting a ticket in there and investing. However... Now that you hear about it, you think, oh, introducing startups to corporates. I've heard that already. But back in the day, 10 years ago, nobody was doing that. So we really had this first mover uh, advantage, as to say, which has allowed us to grow from uh, a VC office to now working with about 350 uh, large corporations across the world uh, with our innovation platform. But in terms of our day-to-day, -day, what we do, I really think uh, I should you know, pass the ball over to Ariana for that. <laughs> yes, thank you, Gab. So on the open innovation side, what we do is to really support our corporates that Gab was uh, mentioning earlier to find uh, their journey to innovation. So it's not just a meeting, it's not just an encounter that we make happen, but we make happen pilots and to make also the startup business grow and the corporate uh, you know, take advantage of what is out there. If you think about it, it's almost an outsourcing of R&D on the R&D offices, which really allows the corporates to lower the risks, lower the investments in terms of manpower and also budgets. So we have the, the corporates that come to us asking us, can you find some startups? We really dig down in what are the macro trends that are happening in the world. We look at new technologies that are developing all throughout uh, the world because we are present in uh, in 16 different countries. So we really have 100 people doing the sourcing everywhere in the world. And uh, once we have these areas of interest, then we also uh, ask the corporates, what are their needs? So what are they trying to solve? So once this sourcing is done, 
we ask this, the corporates to select the startups they really want to work with and run a pilot. These are uh, open innovation programs or acceleration programs that are very specific and very different from what is out there in the majority of other uh, of our competitors. We make the magic happen during these programs and we make pilots and POC land. And this is really beneficial, you know, for both sides. On the on one hand, we are growing the business of the startups and we can also take a look on how they are working on their daily to, day-to-day uh, activities. At the same time, you know, our corporates are really satisfied because they are capable to really fix that problem or to, you know, define a new strategy or to exactly produce and develop a solution that otherwise they were not capable. Most of these uh, solutions are faster to market and faster to implement rather than developing them internally. It's true. I mean, it's true. It is uh, quicker on some, some respects. But I think ultimately, and I, maybe this is a very um, rosy way of looking at it, but uh, I quite like to see us as, let's say, activist investors, almost. Gabrielle, what are your thoughts on the state of the startup scene and fintech in particular in Europe versus the rest of the world? Um, where do you think we are if you look at the US and how big are the startups? What are the founding rounds and the global ambitions versus what uh, is happening in Europe? And then maybe Ariana also from startup uh, perspective in general? I mean, all in all, that's a big, big question. As you know, just in general, Europe, we definitely lag when it comes to big funding rounds. We have European founders, particularly in fintech, when they become particularly ambitious, they will go and they will get their funding from Asia and the US and not so much stay in Europe, which I believe does systematically hurt our VC uh, well, our VC space, as to say, since people are constantly looking outwards. But altogether, fintech in Europe is is interesting because, as you know, we are very, very regulation-driven. Um, we have a lot of top-down uh, regulation. That means that startups have very strong bases that they can work around, you know, whether it's with PSD2, whether it's with open banking, whether it's with all these um, laws and legislations that allow startups to work within a framework which is completely different when you look at look at the way startups are working in, for instance, Asia, where it's very, very market driven and they have to basically do everything on a one to one basis with all the banks they're working with or with all the regulator as they try to figure out what they can and can't do. And I think that's a very strong, you know, strong point for European startups is that there is and there are frameworks and they know what they can and they cannot do and they can try to push legislation in a certain way if it helps helps them but it still helps to benefit the entire uh, fintech ecosystem as opposed to them just working just for themselves so i think the fintech scene scene in europe is strong has a lot of potential it's a pity that our funding rounds remain small and then they go outwards, because when it comes down to it, it means that the return on investment when they go big um, is not European held fundamentally. But nonetheless, in terms of the strength of the startups, in terms of the strength of um, the proposals and the propositions being done on the market, Europe has a very, very special um, place in the global economy, I would say. Ariana, so what kind of startups are you looking for? So if I'm a startup with no revenue, just an idea and a deck and maybe one and a half co-founders, can I come to you um, for help? Can I be part of your program or is it too early or is it 
Well, I guess it cannot be too late, right? We really take a difference on how we approach the open innovation programs and the VC side. So when we are doing open innovation program and we are accelerating startups in these regards, we are stage agnostic, meaning as we take as starting point areas of interest coming from our corporate, we really look at the technology. Then we really always believe that to make this wedding actually going at the merrier, startups should be having some kind of MVPs or they they should have worked already with different and uh, other corporates. However, what we have seen in our programs is that we really went from startups who have just received 50K uh, of just, you know, first family and friends, and then startups that instead receive more than 70 millions. So for this reason, we really say that we are stage agnostic when it comes to open innovation program. Whereas when we go and we move into the the investment side, and uh, Gab, feel free to jump in here, but we look more at uh, pre-seed and early stage all up. So it's the earlier, the better. Right. And how do you find them? I mean, especially this year, right? Uh, if you cannot do live in-person events, how do you scout for the startups? Or is it just inbound online campaigns or do, uh, do people refer each other? How does that work? So first of all, we have we have developed this uh, um, proprietary database, which is called Playbook, where we have more than 28,000 startups. Startups get in there because we have more than 100 people doing the sourcing all over the world that keep on looking, divided by verticals, into technologies that have been developed cross-country, cross-industry. So we start from there and we start scraping. After that, well, there are virtual events happening all over, you know, with Zoom and other conference systems. So we participate to those. And then we look on the internet. We browse on the, on the startup. We are not running, doing too many calls for startups because we are really looking into more uh, structure and defined topics. But as a point of reference, we use Playbook as first. And then we look outside. Okay, and how does the selection process work? I mean, some some of the incubators, accelerators, they're asking for an application or an essay or a demo, you know, or some sort of a test uh, or an interview. How does that work? Once we have the areas of interest coming from our corporates, what we do is that we set up a call with the, the startup. We really dig into like with a one-hour call to better understand what's their technology and if the technology can fit with our corporate needs. So this is the first uh, uh, touch point. Secondly, once we have selected the startups, we create a list and we share with the corporates. Corporates have the first uh, uh, scraping of this list and they select the ones that they think are the best ones to be joining the program. Before we get to the final selection, we actually have this selection day. We normally invite in between 20 to 25 startups to pitch only to our corporate partners. So it's a private event that we create and organize for them where they can hear and they can also, you know, ask questions to deepen on uh, the technology. On the sides, we also have one-to-ones to make sure that every details is, uh, is sorted. After selection day, which is the biggest event uh, for the first part of the batch, we are gonna, the corporates are gonna select the ones that they really think 
can be developing a solution for them or working together. Right. And uh, how does economics work? In other words, do you provide financial support or do you take an equity stake or none of that? Is there a co-working space? So if I get into the program, what can I really expect apart from what you've hinted, obviously, is the access to the corporate partners, right? So our programs are equity-free and fee-free for the startups. We have a different business model so from other players in the market. So once the startups are joining the program, we make sure that the, the first touch point is going to be with the corporates. So they're going to you know, grow their business with the corporates. On the sides, we're always organized networking events, workshops, and mentorships. A possibility to really interact with people in the field and make sure that they understand better also the culture. Uh, what we think it's very important for us is to be there. So the, during the three months of accelerations, we are really ca- constantly checking with the corporates and startups to make sure that the, they're working smoothly together. That's very important. So we are also supporting both sides on these. Right. And uh, well, but that turns me back to you. So how are you funded? I mean, are you paid by the corporate partners and that funds your operations? That's how this, does it work or, or also other outside investors? So when Gav was initially mentioning the corporate partners that we have, are, they are the ones supporting the business. So on the open innovation side, we, the corporates are uh, supporting with a, with a fee, the program. And then for the startups, it's a fee-free, equity-free. Keep in mind, it is very important for what concerns and if when you're trying to avoid adverse selection in the startups. For us, talent is key. And it's not... So the talents, those startups are really high quality. Most of the times, they need, you know, additional player, got, you know, jumping into their cap table or giving them those 100K. Most likely, they've already raised them. So we want to make sure that we're attracting the best, whatever the stage is. The important is that the technology is really on the forefront and it's going to help the corporate. Right. And, uh, well, how does the monitoring of the startups work, right? And it's especially maybe difficult when you're talking about emerging technology. You know, some people say, well, I'd like to have KPIs like in my big corporate, but it's a startup, so it doesn't work. So they just don't and they accept that some things work out, some things don't. Other people are trying to merge the two approaches between the late stage and, and uh, let's say, complete uh, less is fair and say, well, you know, they have to hit certain milestones, otherwise we don't support them anymore, right? So how does that work for you? What's your philosophy? So for us, these are bi-weekly calls that we have really help us to understand whether there is a problem, if things are progressing, and how things are going, okay? So we try to, we always hear both sides, so both the corporates and the startups, and then this way we also understand and we try to avoid cultural clash that might be, because Anyway, the mentality or the way of thinking of a startup, it's very different from a big corporation. When it comes to, ch- to milestones, those are mostly part of uh, an internal agreement that comes in between the corporate and the startups. So once they've signed a POC and they've signed a contract or a partnership, they might sell- decide to do milestones to reach a certain amount. However, when it comes to the program ourselves, we make sure that the startups that are selected are the ones that are going to be working with the corporates. So this is the first one. If we can, uh, what we have seen, this is working pretty well. 
So we have a very, very high um, conversion rate from, you know, the startups going to the pilot and then from pilot to real going into production. Going to production means that the startups are becoming uh, partners of our corporates and they start working together in the longer run, not just for the time of a pilot or a POC. So metrics are not set in advance. Metrics are not set, set in advance. But what we see is that for us, the most important thing is the fact that the pilot or POC is going to happen. And it's happening in between the, these three months or slightly after because it's a very understood and you you take like an active uh, mediation role between the corporate and the startup that's great <laughs> yes. we, we we try to make sure that everybody is happy <laughs> gabriel can you mention some success stories of the startups that you worked with and in particular of course you know the fintech industry vertical right whether that's a part you know that's uh, examples from france or elsewhere i know that you have other regional hubs for fintech as well of course, of course. I mean, success is defined a little bit differently for every startup, mostly due to the fact of what they do, what their goal is, if they eventually want to be bought out, if they want to become the biggest player, or if they just want to basically work with um, financial institutions. But evidently, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to our founding myth, evidently our investment in PayPal was one of our big, uh, our big, big success stories. And uh, What's very, very fun that happened recently that I'm going to mention, even though it's not quite fintech, but kind of, is that we recently exited from a startup called Honey, which is a browser extension um, to allow people to do better shopping decisions uh, by connecting with coupons uh, across the web. And what's very, very funny about this, this acquisition is that it was done by PayPal. So we had a portfolio company acquired by an ex-portfolio company which uh, is always, you know, very, very fun to see. So that's one of those big hit, you know, wonders that everybody's excited about in the in the financial industry and in the ventures industry. But that doesn't mean that a portfolio and a portfolio in general is only made up of those, you know, big uh, multi-billion acquisitions, right? In fact, most of a healthy portfolio is made up of startups that have managed to go times 10, times 100 in valuation, and they're really serving a purpose in the financial industry. And I can give a couple examples of startups that we've invested in, for instance, in Europe that um, are doing very, very well. So for instance, one startup that we uh, we like to talk about, and I mean, I guess I like to talk about them because they were one of my first investments almost four years ago, is a, a startup called DreamQuark that is based in France. They have a team that is essentially fully, fully made up of very, very learned people, you know, scientists and such that decide to create a platform to allow people who weren't data scientists to nonetheless be able to decrypt data science and machine learning uh, data, which is also something that that's very, very important. And one of the things we liked about them is that we were able to introduce them, for instance, to BNP Paribas in Paris, and they did not one, but three different pilots with three different business units that then allowed them to enter into commercial agreement. So when we talk about success, there's evidently, you know, these big, big acquisitions, which we like, but then there's also having, you know, a steady growth, having profit coming in, having good commercial agreements with, you know, big names such as BNP Paribas or any other large financial institution. And for us, that's, that's a success. Right. Uh, of course, that makes sense. And uh, my next question would be, of France and Italy have been hit hard by the pandemic and hubs like yours often host a lot of events and meetups and educational events and things like that. So 
how did you manage or have you turned to virtual events and outreach or is it not something that you have been focused on anyway? How does that work for you? I mean, ultimately, the startup community has always been a very physically present um, community, mostly because a lot of the most interesting startup successes in the industry have always been done due to serendipity. So meeting someone somewhere, mm -hmm. hearing something. Uh, I mean, I myself have sometimes heard something interesting from people pe speaking behind me at an event, you know, with drinks in their hand. And so having that suddenly not be accessible anymore was evidently a blow to the startup ecosystem because it's all about, in a way, of course, working on your own solutions and working on what you need to do. But it's also about, you know, hearing what's out there and hearing those rumors that are passing through. And we were essentially very, very hit hard, hit very hard by this. And yes, it's true. We did have, we used to do a lot of events in order to nurture this community, but that had to scale back and we all had to go home and we all had to figure out a way to do this via our computers. And yes, it, you can have a Zoom hangover. It exists or a WebEx hangover. <laughs> There are days you don't want to look at anybody in a camera. There are days when, you know, you're wearing your pajama bottoms and, you know, you have a sweater on so nobody can tell. But we still managed. And I think one of the best ways we were able to do this is, yes, webinars don't have the same reach as in-person events. Um, we can pretend they do, but we all know it's not the case. And uh, I don't know if you, Rudy, you noticed this, but I'm sure you noticed that you were getting something like five webinar invites every day during confinement, right? Yeah. I mean, at some point we were like, enough with the webinars. And so what we did is, of course, we kept, you know, general events applicable, but we also tried to drive more into very, very specific content. Because when we were doing events, it was always important to do them fairly general so that a lot of people who could physically come, they could come and everybody would find something that was interesting to them. But now that we were opening up these events to essentially the global ecosystem, you know, we could have people in Singapore listening, we could have people in London listening, we could have people in Washington listening, it meant that we could dive deeper into very, very specific topics and still have an excellent turnout, right? So instead of going broad to have a physical, you know, amount of people coming in, we instead drove deeper into very, very subject, very subject matter expertise so that people from across the world who are interested in that specificity could actually join. And I think that's where we were able to really make a difference, Right. It makes sense. This is the great point, right? So you could connect people who otherwise would be difficult to get to. On the other hand, people are overloaded by these invites. Um, so maybe you have uh, more people registering, but they're not showing up, right? Because it's they are tired of it and overloaded. But uh, that's an amazing thing. And I've seen it as well that uh, for once I could put people together from different countries, which otherwise would be very, very difficult to do. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in a way, it also made the world seem a little bit smaller. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but we're, we're used to traveling quite a bit. And, and I myself, you know, because we have five fintech locations in EMEA, so we have Paris, we have Frankfurt, we have Amsterdam, we have Barcelona, we have Abu Dhabi. It meant, you know, going back and forth across, you know, to meet the teams, to meet the people we were working with, to meet the startups. And there we were still, you know, keeping those links together. But I was doing it from, you know, home or from uh, the office, essentially, when nobody else was there, essentially. And uh, that that was actually quite nice. It, it, it made the world feel a little smaller. Okay. So last question is, where can interested parties reach you? Well, um, I would say Twitter, but I've been locked out of my Twitter account. 
So that might not be the best, but generally you can either reach me by email. It's very, very easy. It's gabrielle at pluginplaytechcenter.com or pnptc.com for short or LinkedIn. You feel free to DM me via LinkedIn. I'm easily findable under Gabrielle and Zerillo. And uh, so is Ariana. Perfect. So thank you. Ariana, so where can interested parties reach you and find out more about you and plug and play in Italy or in Europe in general? So you can easily reach out to us on our LinkedIn profiles, both the personal ones and the plug and play tech, tech centers or plug and play Europe or on Instagram on plug and play tech, tech center or plug and play Italy. As well, our personal emails are always open. Mine is arianna at pnptc.com. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.